0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
0: All right, hello. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I am Brad Listy in Los Angeles, and I am pleased to have Sarah Hall on the program today. She is the author of a new novel called Burnt Coat, available in uh, North America from Custom House Books. Burnt Coat is the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, com is my online culture, magazine, and literary community. It is edited by Joseph Grantham, this program's social media director. If you would like to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, just go to the thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. Basically, the way it works is you sign up, you get a book delivered to your door every 30 days or so, and I interview book club authors on this program. Sarah Hall is from the UK and is one of the more decorated and celebrated authors working uh, in the English language. She has written, what is it, six? Is this her seventh novel? Three short story collections. She is a recipient of the American Academy of Arts and Letters E.M. Forster Award. She has won the Edge Hill Short Story Prize, among others, and she is the only person ever to win the BBC National Short Story Award twice. Two of her books have been nominated for the Man Booker Prize her second novel, The Electric Michelangelo, and her fourth novel, How to Paint a Dead Man. Her work has been translated into more than 15 languages. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and she also does some journalism work. Reviews, op-eds, commentaries for BBC, Sky Arts, and so on. I had such a nice time talking with Sarah Hall, and that conversation is coming up momentarily. I do want to wish everybody listening a happy Thanksgiving, if you're here in the States, or a happy thankstaking, whatever you call it. This country is a mess. This holiday has uh, specious origins, to say the least. But in a simpler sort of way, it's a day to rest and relax and eat good food, hopefully with people you care about and who don't, infuriate you. Uh, you know, we all have, I think we all have mixed feelings about holidays. Do we not? I know some people get super into them, but I just want to say thank you. I'm grateful for other people, listeners. And, uh, if you feel grateful for this show and you would like to support it, please, uh, do. I would appreciate that. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. This podcast is offered freely. The entire archive is offered freely. It's a listener supported show. Every episode is available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, wherever you listen, you can listen to the full archive hundreds and hundreds of hours, all free. So if you have the means, you can support the show for as little as $1 a month, throw a dollar into the hat every month, throw three, throw five. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, So, once again, my guest today is Sarah Hall. Her new novel, Burnt Coat, is available now from Custom House Books. This is a beautiful novel. It was written in a a fever, a creative fever, shall we say, as uh, the world went into lockdown in the spring of 2020, at the beginning of the COVID era. And it is astonishingly eloquent and well conceived, considering that it was written in in a kind of real time way. It's not about COVID, but it's about a pandemic, and it speaks very much to the times that we live in. It's about relationships, it's about the body, it's about art, it's about sex. The ways in which we live and love and decay. And it's just beautifully written. Kind of hypnotic. I loved every page of it. So I'm very pleased to have Sarah Hall on the show and to get to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Sarah Hall and her new novel, Once Again, is called Burnt Coat.
2: So it really was the first day of our first lockdown, which was March 2020. And um, I woke up really early in the morning, five o'clock or something. And we were in that phase of uncertainty and fear. And this was before the vaccine. So nobody really knew what was going to happen long-term with the disease. Nobody really knew how bad it was going to be. And for some reason that just seemed to work quite well for me. And I just got up and started writing. Um, I've likened this response to in the north of England, we have medics who are called first responders. And they're the people that go out in an emergency when a phone call goes through to the emergency services and it takes too long to get uh, an ambulance or a helicopter out to the person in trouble. So I woke up that morning feeling like I'd had a first responder call basically, and I needed to get to my desk and just start working on something that was not necessarily going to be helpful to do with the pandemic, but was somehow a response to it. It was just as simple as that. And that may just be this kind of Northern upbringing in me that made me respond in that particular way. It's also fairly hard writing at the moment. You know, I'm a single parent and there's a lot of time pressure and this was one more thing, you know. Oh, so now my kid's off school. I have so little time anyway and uh, you're going to give me less with the lockdown. So my response was kind of, you know, two fingers to that. I'm up at five, and I'm going to start work.
0: So you were writing this at five before your child, is it a boy or girl? I don't. Girl. Okay, so before your daughter was up, that was your writing time?
2: It was, yeah, and that happened every morning until the first draft was done. And it was a very quick first draft. You know, there was a kind of urgency about, this particular book. It came out of nowhere. It barged the book that I was writing out of the way. I just wanted to get written. So the first line appeared, those who tell stories survive, and the rest just came from there. And the first draft was in some ways, not reportage exactly, but it was me responding to the situation, the ongoing situation, the news, the speculation But already I was kind of looking around the corners of the pandemic and the speculations that were going on to try and figure out what this thing, what this situation was going to mean down the line. And a fictional story was already kind of running through it. But the later drafts were really about converting what was not fiction into fiction and smoothing out the edges and creating something that would resonate now, but also hopefully have a kind of telescopic vision to it so that it would see a much larger picture around it.
0: Okay, so this novel burnt coat barged another project out of the way. What was what was first? Like how did it how did it originate like uh imaginatively? Did you see a character was there a voice was there a title what happened?
2: Yeah, I mean I knew there was going to be a second person address in it. So I had a sense of the voice already. And I knew the main character was going to be a woman uh, later in her life and looking back over the situation of her youth where she goes through a pandemic. And it was going to be about art as well and the formative experiences of this woman's life. Her name is Edith. So I had those operating keys to it. I really wasn't so sure how things would end, I, you know, I had a sense of shape. The same way that I write short stories, I guess, and in some ways, this is the novel of a short story writer. You know, it's compressed, it has a, hopefully a calibration to it, an efficiency to it, there's a hinterland surrounding it, not everything is is discussed in the book, but I'm I'm hoping that the reverberations are there towards something greater. So I had a shape, you know, I had a sense of shape and certainly a sense of mood and an idea about resilience. And things like the technique that the uh, artist is using, that Edith is using, the Shao Sugi Ban, this burnt wood technique, that came later, but the initial idea was just about resilience. How do we get through this? How, do, how does anyone get through something like this? How do we survive?
0: That's well put. And as I listen to you and I think about the speed with which this is written, because you started this in March of 2020, and here we are in November of 2021, and the book is out. That's a fast pace.
2: It was fast, yeah. I mean, probably from beginning to end of editing, it was about a year. There was some fairly intense editing work that went on, both with my uh, U.S. editor at Custom House and also my U.K. editor at Faber and Faber. They were working in tandem, which was great. But that was a that was a <laughs> a difficult edit, let's say, not necessarily because a lot of work needed doing to the book. Uh, like with my short stories, the first draft was pretty good. You know, it was it was set. But just the nature of it. And I remember finishing the first few drafts, getting it to a point where I could submit it for reading and then breathing this huge sigh of relief. It's like, oh, my God, I'm out of the pandemic novel that I've just written. And then, you know, a month or two later, I was having to kind of go back into that situation, which was very hard. I mean, by then we'd come out of the lockdown. You know, I think there were developments going on that meant things were not quite as scary and here I am having to go back into this terrible crucible that I'd created, right. <laughs> which was a return to the situation that everybody else was escaping.
0: Right. You did it to yourself, Sarah. I, right. I, I hate did. To... <laughs> I did. So Nobody to blame. Is, is this pace of creation unique to you or is this how you how fast you normally work on a novel in particular?
2: The first drafts are often quite quick. I think there's a sense of urgency and excitement when I'm writing them. It depends on the novel. I mean something like The Wolf Border, a much longer novel, you know, it's over 400 pages, uh, it took a much longer period of time to research and write and edit. Again, this was this was it was feeling like a kind of a short story, like a long short story, and they don't take too long. You know, they they come quite rapidly. The feeling is that they're ready to go when I start writing them, and this was very similar. So I guess it is quick, but then, you know, I have written novels that quickly before my first novel, Pawswater, was written within a year, probably. The editing took longer, but... So it's not unusual for me, I think.
0: Okay, because I was just wondering if, like, there was any consternation on your part or concern, like, wow, this this is all happening fast. Is uh, Have I gotten this right, you know? That's how I think I... I'm probably projecting myself <laughs> onto this, <laughs> but I would be like, got to make sure I... I got this right because it's happening so fast or, but I guess if you have to, you know, an editor in the UK and an editor in, in the States, and they're both keeping an eye on it, you know, you can yeah. trust that they're going to pull you back if there's anything not right about it.
2: Exactly. And we were certainly having conversations about, are the readers ready for this? You know, should this be held off for a while even? Should it be, you know, we'd originally thought maybe we should try and bring it out in the spring of this year, because that would have been uh, the year anniversary of the first lockdown. I mean, it would have been an incredibly hasty edit and and the wrong decision. But we were having those conversations uh, because, you know, it's a fairly immersive book. It's, it's experiential. And to give that to, you know, to readers who have just been through very traumatic situations. I mean, we really went through quite a lot of trauma in the UK. And I'm, I'm sure in the USA as well, it, it was similar. So it's a big ask for a reader to reimmerse themselves in what was frightening and um, upsetting in a number of different ways and politically divisive as well. Uh, but the feeling was this book has a lot else to it. It is about art. It's about a lifetime. It's about sex and love and the relationship with death that Edith has, which is probably one of the primary relationships of the novel is something that it's not pandemic dependent. This The pandemic was an accelerant for this character, but it could have been something else. There could have been another trauma that, that she was looking back on trying to get to grips with mortality and reconcile herself with her eventual fate.
0: Yeah, there's something so impressive to me about this book like taken in that context because I think it's really easy to write a bad pandemic book in the midst of the... F- The lockdown just starting because you don't have perspective you don't have the benefit of hindsight you know to kind of wrap your mind around things and the fact that you were able to conjure this like on the fly i don't know just makes it kind of doubly impressive to me because it's a it's a really deft artistic achievement but it's also like an, an act of resilience you know like you were talking about like i'm going to make something of this here we are we're locked down this is i'm an artist i'm going to make art about it and uh i don't know kind of blew my mind uh on in that way because we all lived through it i know how disorienting those first few days you know those first few months i should say mm-hmm. were before we kind of had a handle scientifically on what the virus on what the you know what covid is and and you know what the outcomes are going to be and so kudos to you, you know. I...
2: Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. But I think Edith is questioning her own art form in the course of the novel. And probably in some ways, this is just representing me and my thoughts while I was writing. You know, what good is a book in the face of all this? I had I had novelist friends who were going out there and training to become vaccinators. You know, that was good. That was practical and useful but what good is a book? You know, it's companionable at best. So you can, you can hold the hand of a reader and not necessarily offer them comfort, but just go through the same experiences and ask the same questions about difficult situations. And certainly Edith is questioning what she does in the novel. She's been charged with creating the national monument for the dead for the pandemic. And it's, it's an enormous task and she's grappling with it. And, uh, waits until the end of her life to give this thing over you know to finish the commission and i think that was i suppose me exploring the nature of art and 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 what use it has in making sense of our lives and our experiences and our tragedies and i suppose because this novel is not dealing with the covid pandemic it's dealing with a fictionalized speculative pandemic a nova virus which is this invented virus which is substantially different from the coronavirus you know it's that that freed me to in some ways to play around with with the the history of pandemics and some what-if scenarios so I didn't feel entirely bound by what was going on I think by turning the dial a few clicks and creating something similar but different it was allowing me to create some other scenarios and feel free as a writer
0: yeah, I mean, I just think that exploring what art means, uh, especially when it's buttressed against a crisis like a like a global pandemic, <laughs> like what's the point? You know, art's like what's the significance of art in a time of crisis like that? And then I think too, what you sort of have to cop to, and I've had this conversation more than once uh, on this show with writers, is the fact that some part of me enjoyed it. And I think some part of Edith and, you know, she says as much, I believe in Mm -hmm. the book, I think you must've felt like this, especially as this book is like firing out of you. You're like, I know we're in the middle of a shitstorm, but it's kind of working for me, you know? And so how do you navigate that? I mean, there's elements of privilege involved, just the fact that you were able to sit down and write a book while, you know, nurses and doctors and, and not just you, but like me as well, I was working on Mm -hmm. fiction while nurses and doctors and frontline workers were going in every day. But there was something about the enforced solitude and the slowed pace of life you know there are elements of it that suited me and that felt like the realization of dreams i've had (laughs) i mean i mean you know not in the i don't mean to belittle you know because it's you know it's delicate but just living in los angeles like everything the pace of life slowed down and traffic you know the streets were emptied of traffic there's something wonderful about that if i'm being honest
2: there's something wonderful and strange and all of a sudden the civilization that you know finishes and something else takes its place and you're living through it. So it's not just a speculation. It's uh you know, it's, it gives you the alternative in some ways. And I think, Yeah, some parts of me did enjoy this experience, not because I was enjoying the trauma of it or anything like that. And, And I should say, you know, my dad contracted COVID a few weeks ago and passed away. So we've had the steep end of things as well. And it's ongoing over here, we're still having people die from this disease. But the thing that kind of enlivened me was I guess coming back to my childhood, this sense of practicalities, what do you do in this situation? So I'm from this, you know, valley in the middle of nowhere, and we had extreme weather when I was growing up. We were snowed in really frequently. There was always some kind of problem, you know, a big problem, like a kind of landscape problem or, you know, these real life things that that we were having to tackle. And it's a farming community, you know, so there's a sense of Just get stuff done. Yeah, life's pretty hard. You know, you can't just sit down and worry about it. You have to get on. And I think that's really where it came from, this sense of, yeah, okay, well, this is it. This is life. You know, it's it's not the kind of insulated version that uh, that I've luckily come to experience later on in my life. This was this is childhood again. This is this is fighting to maintain a living, you know, fighting to deal with disease that kind of ravages through, if not people, then cattle and sheep and things like that. So for me, it was, um, it felt not comfortable, but it felt known. Familiar. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. My condolences. Thank you. Thank That's, you. And it was from COVID.
2: Yeah. I mean, he had underlying conditions and had been very careful for the, for the last 18 months, but, you know, when the restrictions are lifted, people want to start living again. And he caught it and with what else was going on, he yeah, he wasn't able to fight through it. But I have to say, heartbreaking as it is to lose him, I was enabled to see him by the hospital. They let me in. I was COVID positive as well. So the setup now is very different. We can be with our loved ones when they're in hospital. you know. And only six months ago, that maybe wasn't the case. So many people have lost loved ones and haven't been able to access them. And we've gone through these layers of inhumanity here where you can't even be with someone at their bedside. So I feel not lucky to have lost my dad, but I feel like I was given something that a lot of other people... Weren't, and I'm really grateful for
0: that. Hmm. So Edith Harkness oh. is the protagonist of this book. And as you've alluded to, uh, you know, she's a, she's an artist. She's a sculptor. She is held in high regard. She's commissioned by the nation, you know, to, to make the, the, um, Nova Virus memorial, you know, so high profile as insofar as like a visual artist or a sculptor goes, the kind of person who gets, big commissions and gets paid well to do her work and is is known at least to some degree. I'm curious to know like uh, how she came to be in your mind, like do you have an interest in sculpture, do you have any training or, or education in that realm or was this something that you just had a fascination with and took on as like a research project? <laughs>
2: I have a degree in art history, so yeah, yeah, and it's probably a little bit of wish fulfillment creating another artist. I've done this before um, because I wish I was practically artful <laughs> i'm not i'm hopefully artful on the page but you know i can't paint i can't draw I, I can't really make stuff i wish i could but i am interested in the history of art and i've studied it um i'm aware of the areas where it's been very tough for women to take up space and make a name for themselves and land art is is one of those areas so it was uh it was important to me, it's always been important to me to create female characters that are agents, they're capable, they're history makers, you know, they're not the wives and daughters of the history makers. They're, in their own right, agents in their lives and in their professions and their craft. So it was quite exciting to me to think of Edith as, as a, a successful sculptor in a field where it's been very hard for women to as I say, take up space. And I love the fact that her sculptures were really taking up space. You know, she makes these huge burnt wood creations, often quite provocative. And some of them are based on big public art that we have in this country with a few little tweaks, you know, the kind of feminist version of it. So, yes, I do have that background, but I'm not an artist.
0: Okay. I I have some envy of art stars. I'm fascinated by how they're created and these people, it's a very, you know, it's rarefied air that we're talking about, but these artists who are often quite young, you know, like maybe, I don't know, it it spans a range, but get paid a ton of money to paint pictures and What's that like? And they have these cool studios, and they're they're often like really good looking. And it's just like, what is this? What's going on here? You know, like, wow. Well, it must be so nice, you know, like like all these rich people are bidding on your work, and you're like selling a painting for like thirty four million dollars or something. Yeah, you know, and that... then
2: you can start encrusting things with diamonds as well. Yeah, just... it gets really serious.
0: <laughs> but I want to go. I want to go to the to the term that you use, land art, because I, I think most people listening will have some frame of reference we've seen this before it's it's like uh christo or is that that's the guy's name right he's yeah. doing stuff I don't know. <laughs> at, the guy that <laughs> yeah. wraps things he wraps the uh you know oh, the right, yeah. the fabric around like a bridge or whatever but it's like big sculpture out in nature is what you're talking yeah. about yeah yeah, yeah. that's what edith harkness does and she's famous for this uh witch sculpture is it called hecky is that my yes re- that's right okay so she, uh, she came to you through your, your kind of art history background. And right at the start of the book, she's talking about stories. And I think a lot of times we talk about stories, we're thinking of literature, obviously, on a show like this, that's the case. But in the context of your book, this is a sculptor who's talking about stories. And I think she's thinking of her work in a narrative sense to some degree as well. And she asks a question that I think is at the very heart of the book, which is do stories make sense of a disordered world? Like, is it possible as we sit around looking at the, the circus that we live in as human beings with so much peril, you know, like not only from COVID, but from climate change, nuclear proliferation, autocratic, you know, regimes rising up and that kind of movement sort of ascendant in so many places, you sit down to make a sculpture or write a book. Like, is it possible to make sense of this madness? And did you come to an answer? (laughs) Like, do you you have any, do you have any firm (laughs) conclusions for us?
2: (laughs) No, but I mean, we all have our perception, don't we? I think You metabolize the world as you see it and as you understand it and as you believe it to be. And that's how we get through it, especially difficult moments, you know, tell stories to ourselves or your dreams tell you stories or, you know, people around you tell you stories, you know, politically lying stories, you know. So I suppose another point in the novel, Edith says, everything's art, even thought, and that's it, isn't it? You just, you kind of recalibrate everything, not necessarily to suit how you want things to be, but we process everything we see and, and 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 hear and feel and understand. And that allows the kind of mechanism of living in some ways. It certainly gives us a kind of tolerance for living when life is tough. But I don't think I really come up with any answers in the book about that. It's just an inquiry. You know, I think most of my work is probably an inquiry without any certain answers in the end and uh again kind of coming back to edith's mortality she's she's wondering at one point she likens herself to Shahrazad. you know she's been telling stories and making making these big icons for death to try and avoid death her whole life and uh and she she sort of has to give that up but she also takes away the stories that make life livable. You know, the death in this book that she has a relationship with from childhood is not personified. You know, I suppose this is a humanist book. I'm a humanist and I didn't want to personify death and it's a godless book. And so that's uh, quite an issue for the reader in some ways. It's quite an issue for Edith, the idea that she's staring into the void and there is no story that can get around that there's nothing, there's no comfort of an afterlife or anything, everything kind of melts away. And that's really what she's staring down in the end—the fact that all stories end, you know, no story can prepare you for, you know, for that version of the end of your life wow that's cheery
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm pouring myself a drink for those of you listening it's 10 in the (laughs) morning it's a
2: great book it's full of humor and sex as well you know i mean we're gonna
0: we're gonna get to all that i want to ask you about humanism can you elaborate you say you're a humanist what is like what does that mean to you
2: yeah i'm a member of the humanist association here so uh I suppose the the principal belief there is that we we have one life and we're responsible for living it well and helping other people live it well. Under that umbrella, there's a tolerance for people of faith, uh, all faiths. So it's something that I find a lot of comfort and reassurance in, the idea that here and now, this is what we can do to make things better for ourselves and for each other. You know, it's not about waiting for some golden moment later. And that's at work in the book, I think.
0: It's practical.
2: It's practical. It's optimistic.
0: Uh, so are you an atheist? May I ask? Because I don't mean to be in- intrusive, but it sounds kind of... I have
2: of... no idea if I'm an atheist. I mean, I, who knows? Who knows what's out there? I can't say one way or another. I've, I've not seen much evidence for, for anything that would lead me to have faith in a particular religion. And that's fine, you know. But of course, you have to keep an open mind, and that's would be more of a kind of scientific approach to things. We don't know, and that means the possibilities exist. So, uh, but I certainly don't have a working faith. I have a faith in humanity. I have a faith in us. We can do better, and should do better.
0: Okay, I think I'm on. I, I'm on board. I, I feel like. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I just don't know. That's always like my default. Uh, I don't know, you know, like show me some evidence and I, maybe I'll be convinced. But uh, I like I like that kind of uncertainty. I, it feels honest to me. Like does anybody, yeah. nobody really knows. Come on, like let's, let's be real here.
2: <laughs> right.
0: Um, but what
2: we do know is that, you know, when there's a piece of litter on the ground, no hand comes down from the cloud to pick it up and put it in the bin. It's generally a human hand that will pick up that piece of litter and put it in the bin.
0: I was out for a walk the other day.
2: Oh no! This is going to be a story about a huge hand from the (laughs) cloud.
0: And God actually reached down and picked up a bag of potato chips off the ground. It was the most amazing thing. And no, actually, it was a man. It was an you know an older man. I'd say like elderly, walking with you know one of these uh, these devices. It's like a stick, but it's got like a little gripper hand on the end, you know. And he was out just picking up trash. And I was like, my daughter
2: has one. She loves them
0: okay i was like wow so this is the guy who does this like i should pr- probably do this too but it was a nice to see you know that somebody Those grabbers
2: are great i mean you can just reach for a beer from all the way over on the other side of the room with a grabber yeah. and bring it over to you i mean there are multiple uses for them
0: yeah it's a very practical tool so uh death and the way that your uh protagonist edith is narrating this book i think you said it earlier she's it's written in the second person she's addressing her lover partner she's also i think addressing death throughout That's the right. book is there am I mess- a little
2: twist no no you're right there's a little twist at the end of the book okay. <laughs> sorry spoiler uh, alert I yeah guess.
0: yeah yeah but yeah. i i don't know but I, I think i felt it earlier than the end of mm. the book you know you can it's not like it's some big secret that mortality is at is at the heart of this thing. I mean, it's there mm-hmm. from the jump. So I like her, and I like people who don't push death to the side or think that it's some morbid secret or something, you know? I feel like that's a big mistake that human beings often make. And understandably so, it it can be scary, and you know, nobody likes to think about dying. It's not a very pleasant business in a lot of ways, but it's coming. And it's like the ultimate reality. And I think that we're better off acknowledging it. And even like, I even like to think about it daily, like so that you can live better or more meaningfully. So can you just talk a little bit about like that, like that relationship and where you were at, I guess, you know, with COVID bearing down, it was obviously on everybody's mind. But did, you know, did the writing of this bring you to deeper understanding when it comes to how you conceive of death and how you deal with like fear, which I think we all have to some degree when it comes to the end?
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think all my writing feels to me a little bit like I've gone up to the keyhole and I'm looking through into that room on the other side where scary important things are happening so which i should say i'm not like that in in life i'm not cowardly but i'm, I'm fairly afraid but through my writing I, I i have this mechanism that i can address those things that i do find frightening so edith's mother in the book naomi suffers a a brain aneurysm when Edith is very young and uh, she survives that but she has another weakening in one of the blood in one of the blood vessels in her brain and Edith is brought up with this mother knowing that at any point her mother might die you know there's nothing they can do about this second weakness in her brain and it kind of sets Edith in the way that like the ghost pavement sets the painting so this is her perspective she knows that that death is out there and possible at any moment and there are moments in her life where she becomes happy and she forgets this, you know, she forgets this kind of thing. She meets Hallett, who is the lover in the book, uh, her partner, and they're locked down together. And, um, you know, it's a very passionate, very intimate relationship. They accelerate through a whole lifetime's worth of relationship, you know, through a kind of marriage towards carer, things like that, and, you know, grief and memorialization after. And Edith is really in some ways, this, you know, the second person sections of the book are addressed to Hallett and her memory of him. But yes, you're right, it does switch into an address to death as well. And and that is in some ways there from the beginning too. So she's she's really trying to understand her relationship with mortality. And it becomes very clear to her, she manages to, in some ways, avoid death. Her mother does die, but because Hallett gets sick and is in the room with her she really does have to face it you know this is when the door opens and she can see the other side the blackness on the other side it's through him so it's a kind of pivotal moment in the book where all of a sudden it's just brought so close to her it's brought home to her this thing that she's been grappling with since she was a little girl and from that moment the second half of her life is sort of built around trying to understand it And you're right, you know, Western cultures are often not very good with death. We push it away. It happens in the hospital. It doesn't happen in the home. It's frightening. You put it off for as long as possible, take all kinds of medication to avoid it. And I think there are other cultures which sort of handle it better and bring it into a domestic situation more, you know, perhaps, you know, stay with the corpse for a week, make food for a corpse, and Edith explores all that in the second half of her life. You know, she she joins a group in Thailand, watching a corpse decompose, trying to under, understand states of being. So it is interesting to me, you know, trying to find my way through something which is a scary subject. And I was raised in a culture that, that that is afraid of it. This novel was kind of written between the loss of my mother and the loss of my dad. So in some ways, you know, it's a kind of it's a bridging book in my own life. You know, I'd. I'd uh, I'd seen my mother dying in hospital a few years ago, and uh, and then more recently it happened with my dad, and I was there with my dad. I was very glad I was with him. I was afraid to be in the room at the time, and for some reason it was so comforting to be with him. I can't explain it, but just t- t- to have it there, to understand it, to see it, you know, it's not the hooded spectre, it's not the kind of grim reaper with the scythe. It was a natural state of being. And uh, and to come to that understanding, that, that conclusion, was revelatory to me. And I think I was reaching towards it in Burnt Coat, you know, and uh, and, and a few months after, one well, actually the same week that Burnt Coat was published, this happens to my dad, and there it is in the room with me. Wow. I know. Yeah. It's just one of those strange timings for literature and life.
0: I mean, yeah. And I can't remember if I was talking to somebody or if I read something about the dying process or maybe you maybe you wrote it was it like the the kind of the to be with somebody who dies and to be in the room with them makes you aware of how delicate the membrane is between life and death Mm -hmm. somebody's there one moment and gone the next was that you? No, <laughs> it wasn't me. I, I wish it was you. You're me. welcome to take credit for it. But I, Thank I, you I, very I, much. It's probably you. Brian. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? I, it's all a jumble for me at this point. But Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
1: That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Is that – did that feeling – did some semblance of that feeling strike you um, when you were with your dad? And, uh, you know, Uh, you kind of write about it a bit in, you know, some some version of it in the novel. But I think to – to bear witness to that transition um, is powerful in that way. You know, we can easily trick ourselves into thinking that life is a lot further away from death than it actually is.
2: Yeah, and you're right, it's very delicate. It's a very fine membrane. And you know, it, it sounds so macabre to talk about this, but just just the the, the quickness with which a body cools down, things like that, you know, you go from, Warm blood to something still and completely different, and it was very strange. You know, I'd written this scene where Edith moves over to the body of her lover and, and puts her head on his chest, uh, and and that description, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm kind of well, not all of a sudden, but you know, quite soon after I'm 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 with my dad, and and I was going through this thing that I'd written, so yeah, it was. It's odd, isn't it? I mean, literature is so intuitive. I think that's all you can hope to be as a writer, as a person with empathy and intuition to try and understand what a situation might be like, even if you haven't been through it, or if you have to kind of turn it into something that, again, will be companionable for the reader. So yeah, I mean, those membranes are thin and they're fine and they're delicate. And as you said before, the the finding you know I I knew my dad was ill and I kept we kept saying to each other well we have today you know not today there's today you know it might be a borrowed day you might be on overtime but it's we have today and like you said before that's the thing if you think about it every day then somehow you can enliven your life and and feel like it's uh, a beautiful thing and a worthwhile thing and enjoy the moments that you're in because so often we're just not in the moment are we I don't want to get all that or anything because I'm not really like that but you know, to to kind of be in that moment and to think this is a a livid, beautiful moment. And I'm glad I'm here. I mean, that was, that was something that the dying process of my dad taught me, I think.
0: And it's, if you think about it regularly, it's not, it's not as surprising. That's what's so strange. It's like, you know, from a very young age, we know that we're going to die one day, but I think so many people when death actually arrives especially if it arrives suddenly or you know out of time you know i think we all imagine ourselves living to 100 or whatever but if suddenly you get a diagnosis or some or a diagnosis or something and it's like a shock and it probably shouldn't be you know this is baked into the cake you know we're we're going to die so i think it i don't know it seems like you have a healthier relationship to the dying process when it comes but it also has the added benefit of hopefully making you a little bit healthier in your relationship to your lived life
2: mm-hmm. that's right
0: uh i want to talk about the title of the book and i want to talk about well like why don't we explain what burnt code is because it factors into to the novel pretty significantly and it's also it also satisfies like some sort of real estate fantasy that i think so many of us have <laughs> So let's give listeners a visual here. Like, what is Burnt Coat?
2: Yeah, so Burnt Coat is the name of the building where Edith lives and works. Uh, she's converted this enormous, ugly riverside warehouse into an artist studio below. I mean, this is sounding like Dumbo, isn't it? Basically, artist studio below. And, um, apartment above so it's kind of her life and her work in this chimerical existence together Uh, and it's huge so she can kind of build the maquettes for these huge pieces of art she does underneath and upstairs she has a relatively simple life and it's it's literally the name of the building and sometimes the names of places do take on a resonance or you know you might end up buying your house because it has a really funky name and it means something to you you know that that does happen so she's very interested in this building partly because of its name she really likes it she's already using the burnt wood technique by that point for her art and uh so it seems meaningful to her but i suppose the name the word the concept is is sort of metaphorical across the entire novel you know this idea that uh, and it's not a new idea. It's it's perhaps a little cliched. The idea that you're experienced, you're burnt by life, you go through these difficult situations, and hopefully come out the other end a bit tougher, a bit wiser, a bit more resilient. And so, the idea is um, that's it really. You go around wearing a burnt overcoat. Right. It still keeps you warm, but it's a little bit singed on the cuff, <laughs> that kind of image, basically, which I love. I mean, often I feel like I'm walking around in a burnt coat, even when I'm not.
0: <laughs> but... Yeah, you and me both. And just to to kind of uh, put a finer point on the technique that Edith uses in her sculpture, she there's a, a great section of the book that unfolds in Japan where she's doing an apprenticeship with an artist named Shun. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, but there's a technique called shusugi-ban. That's right. That's a real thing.
2: It is a real thing, yeah. So, uh, And it's a very old technique that's been used in Japan for hundreds of years, um, where it's usually used with cedar wood, which is receptive to a good burn, deep burn. Um, and so you destroy the cell walls on the top of the wood, you blacken it, Uh, which makes it stronger. You know, when you collapse the cell walls, they become denser. It makes it stronger, also waterproof. So it's a way of treating wood that isn't chemical-based. So it's quite, you know, uh, environmentally friendly. And then what happens after that is uh, the artist or the crafts person will brush with wire wool the top coat, the, the kind of charred top coat of the wood and get rid of the swarf. And underneath you reveal this amazing kind of patterned beautiful blackened grain so these you know these wood if it's been treated that way looks very very beautiful uh and it's also very resilient it can last you know millennia
0: have you done this before
2: no oh my god no give me a blowtorch and i'll give it a go
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm amazed i'm always amazed that any who like who discovered this you know like how do people i guess there's enough people like i'm just thinking of in mathematical terms over time and and I guess like a need for strong wood, right? Like some maybe yeah. that that goes even beyond artistic pursuits. But you burn this wood, but you have to burn it just right, mm-hmm. so that it obviously doesn't go up in flames. And then right. it it the cells collapse in, and it becomes almost like like the like petrified, right? It like accelerates yeah, like right. a petrifaction process, and yeah. it's super tough. It's like metal or something almost. Uh, that's interesting. And I love that metaphor, you know, like, a, you basically create this really strong thing by coming very close to destroying it. <laughs>
2: that's right. And I suppose also talking about heat, the virus in the novel Nova virus creates this really high fever in the victim, uh, which either kills them or they survive it and the virus becomes dormant in the cells. So it was working on that level too. Again, like a short story, hopefully there are all these built-in layers and levels that will be satisfying to the reader or they'll just be really annoying and go yeah, over egg the pudding, didn't you?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, I was just going to ask you because I feel like this is, again, I'm going to use the word elegant. It's such an elegantly structured novel and you are working across time. You know, You do a lot of jumping around and there are these passages that kind of function like short stories, you know, these little sections, like the Japan section, uh, where Edith is over there with Sean and his family. And what is it, a little town outside of Kyoto? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, of course, like, I'm, you know, I have this great vision in my mind. And I'm wondering... Like as a writer, I was reading this and wondering, like god, how did she pull this off? Cuz it would be really easy to lose a reader when you're doing that much moving and to have it come come off so seamlessly. It kind of tricks you. It's not easy to do that. I know from having failed <laughs> at it. <but laughs> it's not easy. So, how did you do it? How, like what are what are things that you're trying to avoid, uh, you know, what are some of the tricks to making a novel that works in this mode um, effective,
2: yeah, thank you. I suppose it 's just about selection isn 't it which so the premise of the novel is Edith is looking back over her life as her life is ending and thinking about what those formative things were in her life, the relationships, the experiences. And the way that memory works is that, you know, we don't remember everything. You kind of pull out the the main details of things that you think have been important to you and you're somehow putting them together. So the book doesn't have chapters. It just has spaces, which in some ways to me seemed more accurate in relation to memory, bringing things together that you think are important, that may not exactly work together, but somehow have gone into shaping who you are and what you believe and uh, the experiences that really were the things that made you who you are and it was just a question of Trying to condense a lifetime and the important events of a lifetime and the important relationships of a lifetime So you've got a handful of characters, you know, yeah The coordinates for the novel are quite wide, you know, Edith is based in the north of England But uh, she travels, you know, there are sections in Japan. Hallett is from Turkey. So you get the kind of Middle Eastern culture and Western culture coming together. I keep saying that this is my Brexit novel. It's my (laughs) fuck you Brexit novel. It's like, no, 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 no. no. We have all cultures and all nations in this country. And, and, you know, I'm in denial about the whole thing. Right. uh, Because that's, you know, that's how I was brought up my generation. We feel European, many of us. So although it's a short novel, a small novel set in a particular place that's not named, but is a particular place. The coordinates are far reaching and I wanted to get enough of the world and enough of a lifetime in a meaningful way, not overwritten, but just brought in with significance and to somehow, you know, create the measure of Edith, the measure of her life. Uh, And I suppose if you were just looking back over your own life, you wouldn't, Maybe spend I don't know. Maybe would spend thousands of pages on it, but <laughs> I think if I had like a week or ten days to live, what would be the things that I was dwelling on? You know, there wouldn't be hundreds and thousands. There would be a few really big things, I think, and that's kind of how the novel functions.
0: And I, I would say, even so, and I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm on board with everything you're saying. I still think it's worth underlining how difficult it is. To keep a reader oriented, like there's not chapter breaks, like as you were saying, there's just white space. There are little section breaks as you go. And sometimes you're jumping across decades and traveling great distances from one section to the next. And that's difficult to do without losing your reader. It's one of these tough questions because I think so much of it is like the kind of deep intuitive work that a, a writer does where you just sort of have to trial and error with it and make sure that you're clear yourself. And, but you know what I'm saying? When you're making especially big transitions in time and space from one section to the next without the benefit of like a chapter break or some sort of visual signifier that would normally cue a reader. Can you talk a little bit about more about that creative part mm-hmm. of it? Because to make it all work and to have the reader stay on board the whole time is, uh, is tough to do
2: thank you um yeah i think again talking about the operating keys for something in my work i'm aiming for a a kind of perpetual sensuality and i I don't mean an overloaded feeling of feelings or um too many textures or anything but i think so it's stylized work you know my writing is reasonably stylized And that's not to everybody's taste, you know, uh, and certainly, you know, different countries will tolerate stylization in in literature and other countries won't. But uh, and readers as well, individual readers. So it's a stylized book. um, And that means that on the level of the sentence, a lot of work is done. The writing is automatic in one sense, but because I started out as a poet, there has to be a kind of essence that seems true and accurate and evocative. On a sentence level, that's every sentence, pretty much, even if that sentence doesn't seem like it's doing much, it's doing something with regards to the other sentences. If you can affect the reader, if they're with you, if they're enjoying the language and and the feelings of the book and everything else, then in some ways, they will come with you across time. They'll come with you across a chasm. But I, I do think there's also a logical progression through the book in some ways, maybe just even psychologically. So she's looking back on her relationship with Hallett, which is a good relationship, but it brings to mind a very bad relationship that she had while she was at art school. Because it's it's very hard, I think, if you've if you've been braced for for tragedy and trauma, and if you've come through an abusive relationship to then embrace a good one, it's people are sometimes bolted down, and and so it makes sense, I think, psychologically for Edith to 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 having to to be reckoned. To be reconciling herself with what was bad as it moves into something good and to be understanding that that she, she may have been created a certain way so it means she's going to need to stretch to get to the next place in order to have a good relationship. I think that logic travels through you know the decade or two decade jump you know between certain passages.
0: I feel like the book teaches you know all good books do this, they sort of teach you how to read them. You know, you, you pick up the cues and you get to know the characters and it's not like a perfect, like one, two, three, four kind of thing, but you start to realize that there are certain threads that are winding together and, uh, it just, it comes together beautifully. And I did not know, uh, I did not pick up in my extensive research of your background that you, uh, started as a poet, uh, but that makes total sense having read this novel because it is so great line by line word choices, like single word choices in a description or a metaphor are, I I found myself consistently like nodding or being like, Ooh, that's a good one. You know? So I, I find that that's the case often with writers of fiction who also have written a lot of poetry. And I want to talk in a related way about writing about sex and It's kind of a funny compliment to have to pay a writer, but it's like, you're really good at writing about sex.
2: Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And, uh, you know, it's a, it's something that, you know, I feel like I've had conversations. I talked to Garth Greenwell on this show and we were talking about like the bad sex in writing award and how much he hates it because he feels like it shames people and might scare people away from writing about sex, but it's something that should be written about. It's such an elemental part of the human experience. But I also feel terrified of it because it feels like a high stakes thing to write about. It can be easy to screw it up. And you wanna you want to do it well. And I don't know, it just feels like a more pressure packed thing to write about than say, you know, going to the store (laughs) or whatever somebody might do in their day to day. So why, how do you approach writing about sex? And if you had to try to parse why you're good at it, what would be the answer to that?
2: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Again, it's like a line by line thing. It's about finding the right description, the right way of conveying a situation or a scene or an emotion uh, or an act. And of course, it's not just the act, is it? It's everything that comes with the act. And I think it can be difficult writing about these things, because there's a lot of freight that comes with sexual interaction and intimacy as well. And it's a powerful thing. It's a mundane thing. There are kind of gender dynamics, there are all kinds of dynamics, cultural freighting, cultural assumptions. So or it might just be an act, you know, a thoughtless kind of act. And so there are, there's lots to consider when, when writing a scene that involves sexual intimacy between two or even more characters, or one. But I think it's really important. It's important for me because I'm interested in the human body and how the human body interacts with the world and other human bodies and where psychology sits within it and emotionality sits within it. So the human form is this incredible thing and it goes through these different stages and experiences. And I do write about the human body in extremis, whether that's fanaticism and terrorism, you know, joining a paramilitary or some other kind of endurance test or some other kind of state of being a brain tumor affecting somebody's behavior and sexuality. And so the act of sex, you know, the using of the body and the emotions and everything else is is part of that interest for me in relating the experience of being, the kind of corporal presence in the world and how you're interacting with other people and it. And I think like any other kind of description, whether you're trying to really nail a landscape in an evocative way, in a visual way, with its memory and significance and everything else. It, you just need to pay language, the respect. So particularly in sex scenes, it's very difficult. And I think people can get it wrong so often because the language isn't somehow right. Uh Or all those considerations haven't been brought in. I don't know. Or maybe I'm just naturally good at it. <laughs> I, <know it's> bad.
0: <laughs> I mean, this is the thing about these. I mean, what were we talking about earlier where it was the same kind of thing I mean, yeah, like making these time transitions or writing well about sex, like so much of it is intuitive and you want to sort of like narrow it down to a few rules. I think in my head in the past, I've said like, you know, you just got to be direct, say what's happening kind of bluntly. Um, Maybe sometimes you can get a little too shy when you're writing about sex and you're certainly not shy, you know, like (laughs) writing about the body, like as it is. But also artfully, you know, some of the descriptions I feel like, uh, you know, they have that poetic quality or they're reaching toward, you know, like a metaphor, metaphorical imagery and stuff like that. Um, But I guess too, practice makes perfect, you know, you've been doing you've written about sex before and, you know, you have to sit there and just kind of go through the process like you do with any other element of writing and maybe write something that's not so great. And then in revision, try to improve upon it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And certainly there was a lot of editing done over these particular scenes to try and get them right. Um, And it's about believing in what you're writing, too, which sounds a bit weird. (laughs) But I think. It's important to really, in some ways, as a writer, believe in what you're putting down on the page. And if you can enter that space of it really happening in your imagination and making a huge effort to convert what's happening in the imagination into the right form on the page, so that then that activation will happen in the imagination of the reader. That's the transaction that needs to be done properly. You know, sure. Be a good lover as a writer on the page. There and you then go. You're being a good lover to your reader. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, and uh, th- there's also this idea, you know, within the context of the um, within the context of the plot of the novel. You know, obviously, there's this pandemic. And I think maybe a lot of us in COVID times were brought to a higher awareness of the body as this like source of joy, but also source of pain and decay. You know, it it is an interesting uh, parallel. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like mm-hmm. Bodies are like, they're so fun and they can deliver all this um, goodness but they're also kind of gross and can be a a terrible pain, you know, so.
2: Exactly. And they go wrong yeah. and there's effluent and there's all kinds of stuff, you know. I suppose that's the interesting thing for me about the relationship between Edith and Hallett. Uh, they begin as lovers, you know, they form an intimacy and she has to become his carer, you know. And death is a very messy business. Um and so the focus you know so often in literature we see love as in its best form being epitomized as kind of useful and sexual and everything else and and actually it might be that the most astonishing and and brilliant and powerful form of love is is comes later when you are physically looking after somebody who can't look after themselves you know it's another version of love and so i think that's what i was trying to do in the novel is move from this you know wonderful, enraptured early love into other forms of it, and again, the lockdown provides a scenario whereby the two lovers can accelerate through a lifetime's worth of relationship in the in the course of them you know having a few months together and having to go through so many different experiences together, and you end up with with this kind of love in death and love after death too, which for me becomes the most important uh the most important or the most powerful kind of love in the end
0: i'm thinking about friends of mine who met or like maybe didn't meet but started dating and then got very intimate like right after 9 11 remember there was like a, there were stories written about this like journalists would write about this how like nine there were like 9 11 relationships you know, I guess maybe more so in the States than elsewhere. But you know, there was the trauma of that experience. And suddenly people like in the aftermath were like going out to bars and like having super deep conversations with complete strangers and hooking up and you know, all this stuff. And I got to believe there are lots of pandemic relationships. It is a crucible, is it not? I mean, There are a lot of people who are single i've you know read online who are just like i've been in like real isolation you know and especially in those early months where they were just completely alone Mm -hmm. Um, but then there are also people who are like you know we had just started dating and then he moved in you know Mm -hmm. because because of the coronavirus and like you say it's this accelerated timeline and yeah and you know next thing you know I guess maybe you're you're married or you have a child or whatever but that's one of these things that a crisis does provide I suppose is an opportunity to go through quite a lot very quickly.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and I think that was always the case it's just that we're not used to so many crises, you know. I think you know a war might happen and people would get married before before the young man went off to war. Um so I think it's always happened that way or arranged marriages or you know there are kind of uh there are uh, uh, mo- there are ways of uh, entering into a relationship which don't take, you know, five or 10 years with everybody resisting and saying, I just don't know if I can commit. You know, I think <laughs> I think humans have been barely used to these, you know, sharp encounters where you got to decide because, you know, life's bearing down on you.
0: It's a, in, a, in a way. It's nice. It's clarifying. You know, it's yeah. a global pandemic. How do you feel? Yeah. Let's make a decision here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
2: and a lot of people broke up as well in lockdown. I mean, I think there was this terrible statistic in the UK of like one in five relationships, which is you know that's quite something. If that's true, I'd have to check that. Somebody well, get the fact checker out. But um, yeah, that's extraordinary.
0: Suddenly, you have to be around each other all the time. You know, people used to go to the, go to the office, go to work, and have you know. So suddenly, you're living in the same space, especially mm-hmm. if it's a small space. I always think about people living in urban. Uh, Urban environments in particular, the close togetherness of all that, and being in an apartment, and man, you better get along. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, you know, before I let you go, just real quick, I want to talk to you a bit about uh, a bit more about where you're from in the north of England, and how you got into this. I mean, you talked about having an art history uh, background educationally. Uh, When did you When did you know that you were a writer? When did you start? And just give people kind of an an idea, like an encapsulated idea of how you came to be one of uh, England's like shining literary stars.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, I think I was just a weird kid. I was very awkward around people. Um, I always felt more comfortable writing. I don't know why. I had trouble reading. I didn't have... um, actual trouble reading like I could uh, I was fine for my age in terms of all the tests but um, it felt like a very lonely occupation and that might be because I lived in a very remote place and I just wanted people around I didn't want to be entering into a book where I didn't really believe in the people in the book anyway you know so I wanted proper company but writing was different maybe it's because I was creating my own people but it was more a sense of no no this is the way that I can reach a level of communication that I cannot verbally or perhaps even just my thought processes without having some form of it being externalized it, it seemed to it seemed to feel like the right way to communicate for me from a very early age and the way it works in this country is we're funneled towards the arts or funneled towards sciences and maths very early on so I, I entered the kind of bloodstream of the arts and literature and uh, have a couple of English degrees and studied creative writing and just formalized my interest in what I was already doing and then I got a very early break uh, I think I was only about 25 when Faber and Faber bought my first novel and then went through a very rigorous uh, editing training program working on that first novel
0: So wait, 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 may I ask uh, what, what is the editing training program?
2: Uh, there's no editing training program, but when you an editor like mine, there was a lot of red ink on the page, and I was 25, and so it felt like a training program.
0: Oh, okay. I was you like, know. I was like, what do they no, have? No, no, what no, do no. they have in England <laughs> that we don't have here? I wanted, I want this program. Yeah, that
2: would be good. I mean, editing is a very skilled occupation, and there are a few really good editors out there anymore. I think publishing houses have gotten rid of them, and they're using, you know. Anyway, so uh, there, there should be school for editing, and there should be more very well-paid editors in publishing houses. They're very important. But, um, yeah, I just felt like it was in me to do it. And um, I wasn't necessarily ambitious in terms of getting published. It didn't really work like that. I had an early break, so I was very lucky, but I wasn't sending away manuscripts. Uh, I wasn't really kind of working the field or trying to get into the machine, the literary machine. I was just trying to write the best literature that I could and i i hope that that has conveyed through my occupation and it's it's enabled me to to take on some pretty big subject matter with confidence that i've 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 practiced the craft of it and and i take it seriously um and i love what i do and that makes it easy to do every day
0: well i know you have like what you have multiple interviews lined up i mean there's just a line of people waiting to talk to you so i know that we have to go i feel like that's a good place for us to end and i just want to thank you for taking the time uh, i'm really thrilled that we got to feature this book in the book club this month it's a wonderful novel and I, like i was saying it's doubly impressive that it was written so quickly and also you know so closely to the pandemic that we you know we all continue to live through So kudos to you, um, for this wonderful book and I wish you well on whatever's next. Do you have another book in the offing? Uh,
2: well, there's the one that I was supposed to be writing before this one came along, but you know, it's it's kind of like the wife and the mistress. I mean, (laughs) mistress and now what do I do? Do I go back? She was so exciting. (laughs) You're (laughs) going to have to cut this section. (laughs) Um. No, so I'm going to, I will try to return to the idea that I was working on before. And the short stories always come. You know, I love short stories. That feels like my natural form in some way. So I'll be carrying on.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Sarah.
2: Thank you. It's an absolute joy.
0: All right. There we have it. That is Sarah Hall. And her new novel, Burnt Coat, is available now from Custom House Books. You can find Sarah on the internet at SarahHallAuthor.com. That's Sarah with an H at the end. SarahHallAuthor.com. She also has a Facebook page. Again, the novel is called Burnt Coat. Available now in North America from Custom House Books. It is the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. If you want to join the club, go to NervousBreakdown.com. The Other People Podcast is offered freely if you would like to support the show. I would appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you'd like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It is free. Go get the app wherever apps are available. And if you have been experiencing any glitchiness with the app, please know that we got it fixed. All you need to do is delete the app from your device and then go to the app store and re-upload it. And you'll get the new version, the fixed version. I hope you guys have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday if you're here in the States. If you don't celebrate Thanksgiving... I hope you have a great rest of your week and weekend. I'm going to be off this weekend. There will be no Sunday show, but I will be back next Wednesday with a new episode. I'm not sure who the guest is going to be. I have a bunch of uh, interviews in the can, but I don't know who, who I'm going to do yet. I'm still deciding. Don't forget about the YouTube channel for this show. Search for it by name over at YouTube, Other PPL, and subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. The entire archive of this podcast is on YouTube. Don't forget, too, I've got a novel coming out next May. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Pre-orders coming soon.